Well, I know what you're all thinking. Didn't Jeff already preach on Mark 6, 45 to 52 in January of 2014? <laughs> the answer is, that's true. Uh, this is a, a sermon that, I, that I've, uh, I love this passage and uh, able to rework it a little bit, make some changes. One of the changes I made uh, in the course of those years was to increase the font size so that I could read it after what Max was saying last week about it's a hard, getting harder and harder, uh, and I felt that as well, but it's good to know that I, even as we change, that God's Word uh, never does. So let me just pray one more time as we get in to this passage. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this wonderful time we've had together, and we thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture, and we pray that you would bless us today as we hear, <clears throat> that you would help me and help all of us uh, to see your goodness and to see your greatness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so all of us know uh, what it is like uh, to be afraid. Dealing with fear is, is just part of living in the world uh, that we live in, and some fears are sillier uh, than others. I do have a fear that I will tell you about from when I was little. Um, I was really afraid of something on TV when I was little. And I'd like to tell you that it was like one of those really scary TV shows or something, but no, I was afraid of the guy that would announce which TV station it was. Especially the guy that would say, this is CBS, in between shows on that network. I, I'm not making this up. I, I, I don't know why I was afraid of this guy, what, what traumatic experience I, I associated uh, with it. Frankly, I don't think I want to know uh, at this point in my life, but, but I will say uh, that now I'm, I'm 47, and I mostly have relief from this fear. This really happened. I bravely searched for and played the clip yesterday, and it was vaguely unsettling still for some reason. But I was able to move on quickly. So, you know, the counselors that are here, we can, we can get into that later, maybe some group therapy. Uh, but of course, there are, there are much bigger fears that we have in this life. And, and sometimes God is gracious to give us relief uh, in those fears as well. Uh, but sometimes the, the relief uh, from that fear uh, just brings new uncertainty and sometimes even doubt. I remember uh, when I asked uh, my wife Catherine out for the first time, first, you know, I was afraid she would say no, then I was relieved uh, when she said yes, and then I was very quickly, very uncertain about what to do next. We probably all know how this feels. Maybe it's, it's a new job, uh, fear that you won't get it, then relief that you do, and then, oh no, what, what have I got myself into? There's a lot of uncertainty here. Maybe it happened when, when you got into a school or, or made a team or, or moved and bought a new house or rented a new place to live or something else. That fear, relief, uncertainty, and doubt rhythm is one that we are all familiar with. And this is a rhythm uh, that the disciples of Jesus Christ experience in a very deep way in our passage as we see in Mark 6 that Jolene just read for us. In this passage, Jesus reveals himself in a new way to his disciples, and it produces all of these feelings for them, fear and relief and uncertainty. The, this book of the Bible that we're reading from today was written uh, by a man named Mark. Now, Mark was not one of Jesus' disciples, but Mark was friends with Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And, and most scholars believe that Peter was Mark's source when he wrote this Gospel And the book of Mark can really be divided up into two sections. This passage is, is in the first half of the book, which is all about who Jesus is. Mark is painting a, a picture for us uh, of the character of Jesus. And there are several stories along these lines that reveal to us exactly who he is. This is one of them. 
And every book of the Bible has its major themes. And one scholar said of uh, the two of the, of the major themes of the book of Mark are that number one, Jesus is incredible and powerful, and number two, that the disciples are weak and often foolish. And we see both of those major themes come together in this passage as well. In our passage today, we will see that Jesus is both immensely powerful and deeply personal. And we'll see how Jesus demonstrates this, and then we'll see how the disciples respond. And as we enter into this story together, we should remember that in many ways this is our story too. This movement from fear to relief to uncertainty is a big part of the human story, but as we will see, it is not the whole story. We see that Jesus is more powerful than we think in the beginning uh, of this passage. And so if we look at verses 45 and 46, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So before we get into the main part of uh, this passage, Mark gives us a little bit of background. Now we're kind of dropping you know, right into the middle of Mark here, so a little bit of context is important. So we ask, you know, what's going on in the story at this point? Well, it's important to know that right before this passage, something amazing has happened. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people, and he did so in a miraculous way. Mark tells us that what Jesus is, is doing here happened right after the feeding of the 5,000. And what does Jesus do? Well, he makes his disciples get into the boat. He dismisses the crowd, and he goes to pray. You might ask, why? Why does he do all of these things? Well, when you think about what might have happened after Jesus fed 5,000 people, it begins to make sense. Because in addition to the Gospel of Mark, we also have the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 6, this also describes Jesus feeding the 5,000. Listen to how John describes it. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You can see what's going on here. We're still pretty early at this point in Jesus' ministry, and his popularity is off the charts. And Mark doesn't tell us exactly what the disciples are thinking, but I don't I think it's difficult really to imagine what would have been going through their minds. You've got 5,000 people, a major crowd, ready to make Jesus king. And here they are, not just one of the 5,000, but they're in the inner circle. They're in the inner ring. They're, they're close to what seems like such a, a transfer of power. Maybe Jesus will become king. Maybe we'll get to be his main men. Maybe it's time for all of these things to happen and for us to receive this, this glory of being associated with him. But it's not time for that at all. And Jesus knows that these people want to make him king, but he also knows that's not the plan. And so he sends the people away, and he makes the disciples get in the boat and go away from the crowd. And notice that even Jesus himself gets away. He goes off by himself, and he prays. And we understand that time with his father for Jesus was so important to him. Jesus was a person, and he was with people all day. And the people around him had many different ideas and different priorities than than he and his father did. The people around him, we saw, wanted him to go ahead and be king. The people around him might have wanted him to to go fight the Romans who were occupying Israel. And Jesus heard their voices, and so it was important for him to withdraw 
and go be with his father because Jesus knows that he and his father have a different plan and a better plan. And so he goes to pray and to be reminded and strengthened for what he has been called to do. But in the meantime, the disciples are having a rough time. And verses 47 and 48 show us some of the struggle that, that they're having. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So here are the disciples. They're apart now from Jesus, and things are not going well. They're, they're out on the sea. It's, it's getting late. And the, and the same guys who, who Jesus had just used to miraculously feed 5,000 people now can't get this boat going because of bad wind. From the high of the amazing miracle to the low of being stuck out on the sea. You know, when I was younger, this is my second TV reference, but there were a lot of popular cartoons. The Smurfs, He-Man, Inspector Gadget. There was one cartoon that that stands out above all the others, and that was Scooby-Doo. Thank you. For those not familiar with the premise of Scooby-Doo, I won't do a deep dive, but it involved a group of platonic friends and their dog, Scooby-Doo, he was the main character, and they traveled around together in a van, and and they would constantly end up getting entangled in these these scary mysteries. And and the gang would, of course, always solve the mystery, and then they would go on their way. Didn't seem like a very sustainable way to to make a living, but they, they somehow made it work. One of the things that would happen on this show was that the gang, they would always do this. They would always split up, right, to try to find clues. And inevitably, the most cowardly person, whose name was Shaggy, would get paired up with a cowardly dog, Scooby. And while they were with the rest of the gang, like, everything everything would be fine. But as soon as Shaggy and Scooby got separated from the rest of the gang, all kinds of crazy things would start to happen. Doors would be opening and closing. Ghosts are appearing. And then Shaggy and Scooby would, would make things much worse by, by just kind of, you know, panicking. As you consider this passage, remember this. The disciples are very much like Shaggy and Scooby. They are. As soon as they are apart from Jesus, things completely go haywire and fall apart. And that's what's happening here. And, and Mark is telling it in this way to make a point. That these disciples, they need Jesus. And they are a mess without him. The wind is blowing. They can't move the boat. They're basically stuck out on this lake. But there is a note of hope even in this description. And you see it in verse 48 that Jesus saw, that Jesus saw them in their struggle. And and we see this in the Bible. We see this in the Old Testament uh, from God in the book of Exodus. Early in the book, he sees the problems of his people. They're in slavery. He sees the problems. It says he saw and he knew. And the seeing When God sees, it leads to action. And it does here as well, even though the disciples don't really understand what is happening as we begin to see in verses 48 to 50. It says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now let's put ourselves, if we can, in the shoes of these poor disciples for a moment. It's the fourth watch of the night. I know we don't keep time like that anymore, but it's super late. It's like four or five in the morning at this point. And they have spent the whole night trying to get a boat across water against a rough wind. And don't forget, they spent the previous day at at a huge gathering with with 5,000 people having a feast. They're, They're exhausted at this point. 
and they're probably very much out of it. And now all of a sudden, here comes this person walking towards them on the water, and, and it's probably a ghost, it feels like. And it's time to panic, it feels like. The previous afternoon, they think they're about to be part of Jesus' coronation, and now we look at their state. They're apart from Jesus, it's late, they're exhausted, they're scared, and their hard work is getting them nowhere. And, and it's the picture that, that, that Mark paints again and again of his disciple, of Jesus' disciples apart from him. And in many ways, it, it is the picture that, that the Bible paints of life apart from God. Exhaustion and fear, toilsome and unproductive work. But Jesus doesn't leave them there. He comes to help them. And, and there's a couple of things that, that are significant when we look at this passage. Number one, where are the disciples? They are out on the water. They're out on the lake, and it's dark. You know, for the Israelites, water was always a scary thing. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that water was, was symbolic of chaos, that, that things were out of control. And so what God does is he kind of subverts this, and, and often he uses events with water to show his power and to show his love for his people. In the book of Exodus, we remember Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, and he raises his staff. And what happens? The waters part, and the people go through. And then later in the book of Joshua, the Jordan River is separating the people of God from the promised land that they are about to move into. And Joshua sends the priests into the water. And what happens? The waters stop and the people walk on through. And both of those stories deeply resonated with the Israelites in ways that probably hard for us to understand because of how they saw the water. And with good reason. The, the water could be extremely chaotic. And when they see that, that their God can control the water, they recognize the greatness of their God and they are given confidence to trust in him. But, of course, there's a difference between those stories from the Old Testament and this one. Because Moses didn't walk on the water and Joshua didn't walk on the water. Something else is going on here. Jesus isn't, isn't raising a staff here so that God will part the waters. Jesus himself is walking on top of the water and it's happening late at night. This, this is someone who doesn't have to ask someone else to control nature. This is someone who can control nature on his own. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Moses. And this water, this swirling, windy, stormy lake, which must have felt very much like chaos to these disciples, Jesus comes and he stands above the chaos and he says to the disciples, in a way, I am the ruler and the conqueror of the chaos of this lake and the chaos even in your lives. And he says the same thing to his disciples today as well. And so even as we move on, just remember when you see the chaos, when you see the chaos on the news, and there's plenty of it, and when you feel the chaos in your own life, when you feel the effects of living in a world that is just not the way that it's supposed to be, when you're fearful and exhausted and all your hard work feels like it's amounting to nothing, Know that Jesus reigns over all of it. He, he really does, <laughs> even when it doesn't feel like it. And I know that sometimes it does not feel like it, and that is hard. But as we'll see in this passage, he's powerful enough and he cares enough to help you in the midst of it. So we noticed uh, that all this happens out on the water, but there's a second thing to notice. Verse 48 says that when Jesus went out to meet them, he meant to pass by them. And that feels a little bit like, like an odd expression uh, to use there. It almost sounds like, was he trying to race them? Was he trying to like, get right, right through or something like that? 
Well, most likely these words are here because they are meant to remind us of another event in the Bible. And we've already talked about them, but a long time before this, Moses, again, the same person who led the Israelites out of Egypt, was on a mountain, and he was talking with God, and he wanted to see God. He wanted God to reveal himself to him, and Moses said, God, would you please show me your glory? And God said, Moses, I I can't do that. It's too much for you. You won't survive. But the Lord allowed Moses to go behind a rock. The Lord would cover Moses with his hand, and as he passed by him, and then Moses would be able to see just, just the back parts of the Lord, but not his face. That phrase, passed by, is used in the book of Exodus. The Lord passes by Moses. And it's used there, and it's also used here by Mark. And it seems that Mark is using these words to remind his hearers of these words back in Exodus. And that's something he does elsewhere in his book as well. Just as the Lord passed by Moses a long time ago, so now Jesus, the Son of God, is passing by his disciples. Jesus is revealing himself. He is showing them who he is. Jesus is showing them that he is God. And this introduces attention because we see again and again that the disciples had a a much more limited view for a very long time of who Jesus was. See, for the most part, they weren't looking for someone who was God. They were looking for someone who would help them get what they wanted. And we can probably relate to this. You know, we want what we want, and it can be easy for us to to use Jesus or others as a means to an end. At least I know that can be easy for me because I I have my own view, right, of of what would be good, what would be good for me, what would be good for the world. And for me, it's usually, hey, relative ease, relative comfort, the approval of others, the right amount of status and respect, and so on. And and thinking this way, we end up missing the plot. Because we see here in this passage that Jesus is more than that. He is the all-powerful Son of God who rules over the creation, who inspires our awe, inspires our worship and reverence. And because he is so powerful, it's just going to happen. When his life intersects with yours, it will introduce attention, and he will undo you, and he will move things around in a way that will sometimes feel like he is wreaking havoc in your life. The author C.S. Lewis talked about this, and he understood that Jesus does this because he is good and because he loves us. So listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Such a good thing for us to think about and remember, both, both as individuals and, and even as a church, you know, we have our ideas, we have our plans of what might be good, our blueprints of what things should look like, and, and that's all fine, that's all well and good, as long as we remember that Jesus is the master builder and that he has a vision that, that is more comprehensive and better than ours. 
And part of our Christian discipleship is is seeing our our imaginations restored and renewed and rebuilt so that we can begin to see the great thing that Jesus is doing in us and in his church. Of course, the disciples, they're not there yet. They don't get it. They thought he was a ghost, and here they are. They're tired. They're terrified. But Jesus is not done revealing himself to, to his disciples quite yet, and that is good news. He reveals himself more in verses 50 and 51. It says, But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind seized, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's all the way through 52. Jesus had already revealed himself as the powerful and strong Son of God. Now he reveals himself in a new way to them. You know, as, as many of you, I'm sure, have, uh, we've been spending a good amount of time watching the Phillies in the playoffs, and we've been laughing sometimes about how the announcers uh, will dis- sometimes describe the pitchers. Like, they'll say, like, he's really good, he's got great pitches, you know, but a lot of times he can't pitch the ball over the plate. And, like, I hear that, and I'm like, well, that, that doesn't sound great. Do I want this guy pitching for us? Because both of those things are actually important. You need both. I would think if you're a major league pitcher, you'd be able to do that. But, you know, both things need to be true. The disciples knew that Jesus was powerful, but they needed the both. They needed to also know that he was good. And that's why the rhythm in this passage is so beautiful and so crucial to understanding who Jesus is. The awesome, powerful, terrifying Jesus comes up to his scared and cowering disciples. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And while Jesus' words are good news, we, we need more, right? Sometimes we're facing something scary, and people will tell us, don't be afraid. It's nice. Sometimes those words themselves aren't that helpful. But Jesus doesn't just tell the disciples not to fear. He goes beyond words. He enters in. He does something about it. He gets in the boat with them, and the wind is stilled, and the long, dark night of struggle is over. See, the awesome and powerful Jesus is also the tender and caring Jesus. His words and his actions here perfectly bring together these facets of who Jesus is, deeply powerful, deeply personal, deeply great, and deeply good. And if we lose either of those things, we have lost Jesus. But we can't lose either of those things because that's who he has always been and it's who he always will be. However, we see in our passage that this amazing event doesn't bring it all together by any stretch, for the disciples. And Mark tells us about it. He says they were utterly astounded. And that's not like surprised in a good way because he goes on to say they didn't understand about the loaves, which is a reference to the previous story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. They didn't understand what that feeding meant about Jesus. And then finally, Mark says that their hearts were hardened. That's a harsh term, seemingly, for Mark to use. Because usually when he uses that term, he describes it Uh, He used it to describe people who were opposed to Jesus. But here you notice Mark uses it for his disciples. And if you read all of Mark, you will notice that there are are times when the disciples really seem uh, to get it and and to really go along with Jesus and embrace him for who he is. But then you see a lot more times where the disciples really do not get it and they seem to be more of like a hindrance to Jesus than anything else. Overall, Mark is telling us here, look, the disciples are not the heroes of the story. Let's make that very clear. Jesus is. 
The disciples are often weak and foolish, but Jesus is not. And here's the thing. Jesus remains committed to them even as their hearts are hardened. I said earlier that the first half of the book of Mark is all about who this Jesus is. The second half of the book of Mark is all about what he came to do. And this Jesus came to go to Jerusalem where he wouldn't just tell people not to fear the chaos. No, he would enter into it. He would step into the chaos of an incredibly, deeply fearful situation where he would be nailed to a Roman cross to take the punishment from God for us and for our hard hearts towards him. And he not only endured that, but he also overcame it by being resurrected three days later. And his resurrection, even more so than walking on the water and stilling the wind, was one more way that Jesus began to push back the chaos when he came. And that resurrection formed a new people, a new community of people who were shaped by it. And as part of that community, there were other people that came along, other people that came along after these disciples who read this passage. They are known today as martyrs, people who were persecuted and killed, often in terrible ways because of their faith in Jesus. And what's interesting is that when we look back at the accounts from the early church, they tell us that one of the passages that these heroes of the faith treasured, that they loved to go to, was this passage from the Gospel of Mark. But it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I'm sure it was such a huge comfort to them in the midst of the chaos of their lives, of the persecution that they endured, to know that Jesus walked on the water and that he was indeed in charge of everything. And I'm sure it was also a great comfort to them to know that the same Jesus says to his disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now you might hear about those heroes of the faith and that might encourage you, also, it might make you feel a little bit ambivalent because you sometimes feel more like the hard-hearted disciple than the one who is ready to like, let's go, let's give our lives for what we believe in. But isn't that really the point of this passage? Jesus didn't reveal himself to his disciples because they were awesome. He didn't comfort them because they handled themselves so well. He revealed himself to and comforted some scared, tired, and hard-hearted people. And Jesus continued that good work because he would continue to minister to them and their hearts would be softened. And over time, they were made new and made more and more into the people that God had called them to be. It's what God loves to do in his people. And he will do this for you as you follow him. You know, if you're not following Jesus, I would just encourage you. It's good for you to consider that, that there's no one like him. There's no one who is so worthy of your awe and respect, who will also love and care for you as well as he does. And consider this, that you are going to put your ultimate hope in someone or something. And if that ultimate hope is not in someone who is both great and good, both powerful and personal, then it's really no hope at all. So I would tell you, turn to this Jesus who is both of those things. And for those of us that, that are walking through this life, imperfectly following him, feeling a lot of times like these disciples, we really and truly are able to sing the famous words of the hymn Amazing Grace, that it was grace that taught our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieved. And while we recognize that we can experience those, those first steps that the disciples 
experienced of, of fear and relief, that next movement, that next step of uncertainty and doubt is still very often with us, if we're honest. And that's why the final movement and the final chapter of the story that is unfolding is in many ways the most precious of all. Because there is a move that is coming from the uncertainty and doubt that the disciples experienced, that you and I experienced, to the certainty and clarity that Jesus will give to us when he does what he promised to do. And that's to return one day, not just to push back against the chaos, but to remove it once and for all. To relieve us from the ways, from the ways this life, which, which sometimes feels, if we're honest, like rowing against the wind, saps us and wears us down. And so hear this clearly. Whatever the chaos is in your life, broken relationships, fear and uncertainty, difficulties at home, at work, or even at church, regret over past sin, regret over missed opportunities, grief, mourning, sickness, the specter of death, whatever it is, look, Jesus sees it and he knows. And he came into the world once to push back the chaos and he will return someday to make everything right. And what do we get to do? We get to wait for and look for and live in light of that day together. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful as we consider your word and consider not just your word, but what it reveals about you. So thankful for the character of Jesus. We see again and again that we behold him with awe and reverence and also that we know that he is so personal and tenderly cares for us in such a wonderful and good way. And we pray that you would form us uh, as people and as a community that, that are shaped according to the resurrection hope that we have. Lord, we pray you would continue that good work in us, Lord. And we pray that you would help us when our hearts are hard to, to come to you, to ask you to help, and to, to know that in the midst of whatever chaos it is, that you are indeed with us and that you won't leave us, you won't forsake us, because that's not who you are. And so we look forward to the day when we will see these things even more clearly. Until that day, help us to watch and wait together. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.